I think, quite frankly, there are probably more businesses that got funded that needed to be funded. There'll be a, a kind of a, a healthy consolidation that, that happens there. I think it's a really big question about who emerges as the consolidators in the market. I, I think the good news is that to some degree, it is a bit of a zero-sum game for climate tech. That zero-sum game means that fundamentally, oil and gas companies need to do something or else they're fundamentally going to be out of business. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience beyond the future of our planet. For this episode, we welcome Matt Shagan, partner at Sustainable Future Ventures, a late seed to Series B venture capitalist fund focused on technologies that transform the way built environment assets are constructed, operated or transacted. We discuss the climate funding gap and the evolution of VC as an asset class, his thoughts on the US Inflation Reduction Act, the peak and trough journey of climate climate technology, the major differences between the US market and the UK, and lots more. One quick point before I pass over to Matt. If I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others that might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Matt. So I, I'm an American transplant that moved over to the UK about three years ago. Prior to that, I spent about 22 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, about Half the time there, maybe a bit more than half, was on the venture capital side. My job is at the intersection of venture capital uh, and built environment and climate. I think I'll probably longer uh, in venture capital than I'm in the other two. So I, I'd spent about seven years in a venture capital fund called Trident Capital, where I'd spent a lot of time on enterprise software, fintech and ad tech and some AI and machine learning tech opportunities. Spent some time at, at a few other funds where I looked at the intersection of corporate venture capital and financial venture capital. So I spent some time with a few different models there. And as I mentioned, moved across to the UK about three years ago and got tapped to essentially help build a new fund called Sustainable Future Ventures, which is where I am now, one of two partners there. So what's your, what's your fund structure at Sustainable Future Ventures? What's your approach? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I got over the time, over my time in venture capital is it's really important if you're not one of the, call it top 10 funds, if you're not at Sequoia or Charles River or Greylock or somebody like that, to really have a point of differentiation. There are a lot of venture capital funds that are out there. And so I, you are thinking about how do I make sure that I can get access to the top deals or how do I, I make sure that the phone rings when a, a promising company is raising capital? You need some sort of a story or hook. And so I was really focused on that. And you know, what we are trying to build it and have set Bay Sustainable Future Ventures. And what I, I think we've got a, a really good angle on is, is essentially trying to, to build a firm that aligns really well with entrepreneurs and other financial investors. So focused on returns, but also is able to add value. So somebody that can deliver more than just capital. And so really that's at the core of what we, we uh, what we built at Asset Fate. So the fund itself is a traditional multi-LP fund. So we've got a few pension funds. We've got some high net worth individuals in the offices that constitute our capital base. But the, the fund has strong relationship with a few core strategic LPs in the built environment. And I think the most noteworthy of which is, is a firm called Patrizia, which is a large asset manager that's based in Germany and has significant assets on both the real estate and infrastructure side. And so what that gives us is a really strong story around how we can bring 
portfolio companies opportunities within a broader built environment and help essentially help help generate alpha for those, those companies. Having a giant player like Patricia backing you, this must be super valuable as a value proposition for the founders that you work with. Really interested to understand whether that has influenced your investment thesis at all, and would really appreciate if you could break down what is your investment thesis within the world of climate tech and, and the relationship with the built environment? It's a great question. Thanks for asking it. I think what we didn't want to build was a traditional corporate venture capital firm. I think there's there's lots of good ones out there, but I think fundamentally there's con- some constraints around that that we didn't have. It didn't want to have rather. So what what we're not is a firm that essentially looks to kind of do either invest to acquire or that is looking to essentially be kind of an advanced procurement function for Patrizia, where we go out there and we say, okay, we want to do a, an FP&A for software. Instead, what we do is we look at some of the core challenges of both Patrizia as well as you know, some of the infrastructure players around the table. And we try to understand those really holistically. Again, not from the lens of just what, what does Patrizia do, but does, how do vendors up and down the value chain think about solving those problems. And so really at the core of what we do is we look at those, those fundamental problems and then we sit down and we get input from various members within the organization as well as partners. And then we, we try to think about what, what from a clean sheet of paper standpoint is the way that, that you would go about solving those problems that the market will go about solving those problems. And so that sometimes comes up with investment opportunities that are very much aligned with Patrizia, or Patrizia is a pen- potential customer. And I think about a business like Lyft Tango, which is on-demand busing and transportation, where Patrizia could be a potential customer for them. And in some cases, if you think about a company like Piclo, which sells software to the grid, Patrizia is never going to be a customer for it. But fundamental, it addresses a core, core piece of the evolution of the market that's really going to be something that we're going to see and Patrizia is going to see over the next 10 years as it thinks about achieving its ESG goals. And Looking at your portfolio, it's, there's a really interesting blend across both hardware and software. And I know that VC as, as an asset class traditionally typically prefers software. Now I've seen research from the IDC that suggests that in the next five years, 60% of revenues in the, the climate tech category will be generated from hardware. Really interested to, to hear your thoughts on that and wh- where your strategy sits in terms of from an investor's perspective. Yeah, I think. Fundamentally, it's really, it's venture capitalists will almost always err towards software if they can. And there's kind of two, two core reasons. One is you're looking at funding a business that will be, you want to move fast and, and break things. You want to you know, be nimble to get to product market fit. And that's fundamentally not something that very many hardware businesses are going to be able to achieve. You can't just kind of spin up a product with five people and see if it fits and then rip it apart and do something completely different. So, and then you on the other side of things, venture capitalists are targeting typically a return rate of 25 to 30% is what most folks put in their, their prospectus, which sounds reasonable, but if you assume that in a portfolio of investments, maybe 20% are really going to be the, the companies that generate the bulk of your returns. So one fifth of them, that implies your, your winning companies are going to have to grow at 150% year over year. That's something that's incredibly hard to do as, as a hardware company for a consistent period of time. So venture capitalists are always going to say, 
can I solve this with software? And fundamentally, it's just a lot easier to conform back to the model. But as you pointed out, the climate tech space is, is different than a lot of the other sectors that the venture capitalists tackled in the past in terms of whether it's social or big data or just in general, the revision of how the, the enterprise processes data. So it is fundamentally something that the, the space is going to have to get good at and figure out. And I think fundamentally, there's a lot of, there's a lot of learning to be done and the space will have to evolve over time. So I think we certainly recognize that we look at, we look at sectors and want to be thoughtful around when we do back hardware companies. Now think about Gradient, which is one of our portfolio companies that has an alternative form factor heat pump. And as you said, if you look at alternative heating solutions, there's only so much that you can do in addressing operational carbon with software-based solutions. We're certainly very supportive of that. But fundamentally, if you're looking to deploy heat pump company, heat pump technologies, yeah, there's going to be hardware involved. So, but that's one where we spend a lot of time with the model and getting comfortable with, with the hardware components. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what portion of venture capital dollars that are focused on climate tech, how it splits you over the next, next decade or so. And obviously VC being, being one type of asset class. In terms of the, the other types of financing being made available to climate tech startups, a lot of folks describe this idea of a, a climate funding gap from sort of series B onwards before they can then attract institutional investments or traditional financing from banks because of the first of a kind nature of some of these projects. What would you say the relationship looks like for yourself as a, a VC investor with the other types of financing in the landscape? And do you see any challenges with the marketplace at the minute having that, that climate funding gap that exists? Yeah, I think it's another space that is, is very, very different from what we've seen in the past in terms of space that were traditionally addressed with, with venture capital because of the capital intensity of it. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of learning that's going on. Currently, there's some people who have put out some interesting thought pieces on what that what that financing stack look like over time. I know Union Square Ventures and Keyframe have both put out extended pieces on it. I think what we're seeing is that there is, there's sufficient dollars certainly in the space in terms of that kind of series A funding uh, for companies. I don't think that good companies are not being funded right now. I think we also see in terms of later stage dollars, that there's a lot of institutional demand to back companies that that are addressing climate change. Because I think, quite frankly, whether it's Larry Bink or Goldman Sachs or others, you've seen people point to the fact that they think that this is a tremendously exciting space in terms of the revenue opportunity, the potential to create truly disruptive companies. And so you you do see institutional investors that are piling into the space. I know TPG, the TPG Rise Fund, Morgan Stanley's raised 500 million plus for a climate fund. Goldman Sachs has raised 1.6 billion. So there's a lot of institutional dollars at their late stage. I think the challenge right now is getting those companies to a sufficient stage where they've been commercially de-risked to the point where somebody like a, a Goldman or a Morgan is, is able to write a nine-figure check in these businesses and really put significant capital to work. And so I think what we try to bring is two things. One is an understanding of how to think through that capital stack and really 
developing a core competence, both through our experiments, experience with our portfolio companies, but also through our connections to, to be thoughtful on capital stack. And then two, I think quite frankly, the companies that are those institutional investors are looking for your brand name customers and brand name endorsements before they write those nine figure checks. So I, I do think your relationship with Patrizia can be something that is a real asset to these businesses when they go out and they look to raise those, those larger growth routes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the age old advice to startup founders of trying to bring on board a, a strategic partner as early on in their journey so they can then iterate and develop and learn with them hand in hand. And I think for climate tech in particular, it's particularly important because stat from CTVC was that roughly 18,000 startups will require first of a kind financing for their projects because they really are breaking new ground and bringing new technologies and capabilities to life, which is super exciting for the planet and the environment and our future, but then also then does bring quite unique challenges for both the founder to tackle and then the, the investor partner to then support them with. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And because these are new technologies, because they are selling into the built environment, it's, it doesn't happen instantly, right? I mean, fundamentally, if you look in a space like clean concrete, it's a space that's going to take a while to evolve from the bench top in the lab to something that's getting poured into a skyscraper. And so I think maybe one of the biggest challenges is thinking through how to find capital that's patient enough and that understands those cycles to realize the fact that if you're deploying on day zero, that you really understand that timeline around what the, what that adoption, what that adoption timeline looks like. And I guess if you sort of fast forward to the, the other end of the scale and you think about the exits and the, the role of potential acquirers in the marketplace, you see in a lot of acquisitions from players like Shell, Snyder Electric, with players like that actually represents about 57% of acquisitions at the minute. What would you say the, the climate tech space looks like in terms of exit opportunities, particularly when you take into account the this quite unique setup of some of the projects, for example, the, the carbon markets, et cetera. Yeah, I think there's, it's going to be interesting to see how the space is evolving. Typically what you see, just looking at parallel sectors that have worked in the past, whether it's ad tech or enterprise software, you, you see the spaces kind of follow that Gartner curve with a peak and then a drop and then kind of sustained growth over time. And I, I do think that there's there's certainly spaces that are that are a bit peaky now that have been overfunded. And so there will be some healthy consolidation, I think, in the the short to medium term. I look at a space like carbon accounting, where I think quite frankly, there are probably more businesses that got funded that needed to be funded. There'll be a, a kind of a healthy consolidation that, that happens there. I think it's a really big question about who who emerges as the consolidators in the market. I, I think the good news is that to some degree. When I talk about kind of like a macro economy, trillions of dollars in, in economic power, it is a bit of a zero sum game for climate tech. So when EV, as an example, is really successful and you see electric vehicles hit purchase rates north of, of 50% and you look at market like Norway, you can see where the, the market is going. That zero sum game means that fundamentally oil and gas companies need to do something or else they will they're fundamentally going to be out of business. And just today, Exxon announced that, that they're spending time looking at options within the lithium market. 
they sit on tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in cash, they will almost certainly be, you know, be significant players in the market. You look at space like geothermal, again, where these large oil and gas companies have a right to play and probably right to win, but they fundamentally are not going to be necessarily the companies that are developing those really bleeding edge technology. They're going to have very big balance sheets to step into those markets. And so while we're seeing, yes, Shell kind of as an early mover, progressive company, European company, I think you're going to see folks get in and where things must really start getting interesting is if you see key assets in the market and you see Shell, BP, and Exxon, and Chevron, that all want an asset, and they all see this as the future of the market in the same way that Google and Meta used to fight over assets and drive up the price of something like WhatsApp. That's really what I think everybody in the space is, is waiting for. And I don't think we're too far away. I agree. And there's a really interesting and quickly evolving market dynamic at play with the U.S.'s Inflationary Reduction Act very much trying to incentivize the private sector to act trying to support the creation of business cases and sort of commercially viable markets. Whereas in the EU, often the approach is more taken for sort of regulation and grants. So it's interesting to sort of compare the two. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Inflation Reduction Act is, um, this will rarely cross my, my lips, but it, it's really an example of the government executing very, very well. And I think a lot of the credit should go to Jigger Shaw over at the U.S. Department of Energy who is the mastermind behind not just getting the allocation of, of dollars for those programs, but really he is a tireless worker who goes out there and builds relationships with the venture and private equity communities to make sure that startups and growth stage companies are aware of the dollars that they are able to deploy at the right point in time, which is fundamentally when you've got a business that has a good technology, but it's too early for a bank to step in and fund it, the Department of Energy will, will step in and provide that, that bridge financing. And they've got a really interesting anecdote about their success with you funding the solar markets in the U.S. and how they really got these large projects funded to what where banks were able to step in and finance it. It's an area that I think Europe and the U.K. are, are motivated to emulate, and we're starting to see pockets. I saw recently an example of a company then approach the Portuguese government and receive some pretty interesting financing options there to, to take a, a technology that had a commercial promise and step in to essentially get that to, to a point where they'd be selling hundreds of units that are $100,000 plus price tickets. And so therefore would be, that would be attractive to banks. And so I think that that is, that really is a key piece of the equation about getting interesting technologies, the point of, of really have the potential to achieve the, those gigaton reduction outcomes that, that everybody is, is chasing. So I'm cautiously optimistic that, that Europe will, will follow in this footsteps because there's certainly a lot of headlines in the FT about, about Europe wanting to make sure that they don't miss out on what's almost certainly one of the, the largest business opportunities of many of our lifetimes. And as someone who invests across multiple large markets. How are you able to source deals in uh, across the two? And how does this influence your approach to investing? Yeah, I think it's, this goes back to that point about really wanting to have a, a crisp story of why, why somebody should pick up the phone and call us versus any number of other attractive firms. And so really our story anchors around the fact that we've got strong relationships on both sides of the phone. When we want to, we want to get the word out. 
about sustainable future ventures and the fact that we're a, a returns focused fund that can bring really strong strategic relationships in in Europe. And that that's a story that's really resonated with the US market because I think well, there may be a lot of dollars over in in the US to to fund technologies. A lot of the customers, a lot of the consumers who are most forward-leaning around sustainability are fundamental in Europe. So if you look at Patrizia, which has goals of 50% reduction in in carbon emissions by 2030 and 100% by 2040, that's reasonably typical for Europe. If you talk about the same same size business over in the US, they would be pretty bleeding edge over there. So companies understand that a lot of the core customers for these technologies are going to be in the European market, they want to go to market with a, a strong, credible, thoughtful partner. And I think we can, we can help bring, bring folks to the right table. On the other side, I think there are lots of European companies who will build strong initial markets in their local countries, but will look at the U.S. market, which is you know, certainly a, a, a fast follower and, and one of the largest, if not the largest in the single markets for, for climate solutions. And so they, they want to be able to go over there as well. And they also want to access funding for, from USB to VCs. And so I think we can, we can hopefully deliver a lot of those relationships as well as I, I'd spent those, those 22 years in that market. So I think we, we hopefully cross both sides with, but quite frankly, it's a lot of, it's a lot of shoe leather, right? It's a lot of spending time out there making sure the story gets out, explaining it why we, we, we've got a right to play and a right to win and then explaining it again. And thinking about some of the major sectors within the built environments, often, at least from my experience, founders and innovators are dependent on quite major incumbents in these asset intensive industries for change. What is your perspective on this and, and how, what sort of challenges do you think that your portfolio have, have come across? Yeah, I mean, particularly in a space where hardware is involved. The design cycles on these are, are, are going to be lengthy and folks are going to see them coming. So going back to Gradient, for example, on that heat pump side, they, they've got competitors there in the market. There's certainly lots of people with commercially available heat pumps. And I'm sure a lot of those competitors have seen the opportunities. So Gradient won out a $20 million contract from the New York City Housing Authority and that there was a competitor to Comedia, which is a, a large Chinese manufacturer that also got an award in that space. And I'm sure others, whether it's Carrier or others, were saw that RFP as well. So I think it's just going to be a, a bit of a foot race here. And fundamentally, it looks a lot like probably a lot of other spaces where you'll have large and established companies that will compete. But fundamentally, the bet here is it's the same as it is for any other space where you're looking at disruptive companies, which is fundamentally, there isn't an any innovator's dilemma in a lot of these spaces where companies either will be focused on their core business rather than that newer disruptive business, or they will be, they'll be prioritizing short, short-term earnings growth over longer-term investment in R&D. And that's not to say that they're making the wrong decisions. That's kind of the way that the deck is stacked these days in terms of public companies. They just acknowledge the fact that they're going to have to go out and essentially buy that next generation of successful companies. And so it's kind of a symbiotic relationship there. And, and without acquisitions or mergers, the venture capital space falls down. So it, it, I'm certainly not averse to that situation because we got to sell our companies eventually. But, but yeah, I think that fundamentally that, that's the way that a lot of these spaces will go. And, and you can see a test through to that with a lot of these folks 
spinning up corporate VC arms to, to make sure that they at least understand how spaces are evolving, what's coming down the pike. And you look at somebody like Semix Ventures that is well aware of the various competing technologies and is, is keeping a close eye on them. And I have you know, no doubt that at some point we'll probably pull out a very large check to, to purchase a company to make sure that they stay on the, on the leading edge of a very large market. And I think it's fair to say that some of your portfolio are not necessarily in areas that one would normally associate with the built environment, carbon future being an example of that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think we, we really anchor on what are the challenges that, that the built environment is facing right now. So we'd look at something like electrification. We'd look at operational carbon, embodied carbon, set. But again, our focus is the look at the full value chain and look at that holistically, look where the market is going, and then then look for pockets of opportunity as opposed to coming at it purely from the lens of, of what a company like Patrick Team might do. And so sometimes we end up in very different places, which as you said, may not be necessarily obvious. So in the case of Carbon Future, the bet there was Patrizzi is going to fight tooth the nail to reduce its operational carbon and its embodied carbon to try to achieve those goals by 2030. But fundamentally, there's probably going to be some technologies that are not quite ready for prime time. And companies like Patrizia will struggle to meet those goals in the timeframes they've set out. And so they will, will want, they will need to meet those using other means. And we looked at that space and we said, okay, let, let's understand how a company like Patrizia would look in it. We looked at broader space offsets to carbon removal credits. We said, fundamentally, where do we think the space is going to go? So we crossed off kind of the lower left quadrant, which is cheaper, lower quality offsets, which I think is a space that's already starting to see, receive its comeuppance. And we said, fundamentally, we think there's going to be real flight to quality and there's going to be a flight to companies that have a strong reputation with the suppliers and with high quality credits. And we ended up in carbon removal credits in the space that's both commercially ready right now is, is the biochar space. And our view is there's no, no stronger company in the space than carbon future. And so that's where we ended up. And what does the next year look like for you? Yeah, I think we, we continue to kind of note down sectors. We like to try to be thesis-driven investors, as opposed to kind of somebody who gets brought a deal and looks at that deal in a vacuum. And so that, that means doing a lot of homework and a lot of research and, and trying to pull apart kind of a, the 360-degree view of the space. And so you know, we just spent a few on, on, on the grid, the evolution of the grid. And we're spending time on a few of other sectors now. We're looking at electrification of both home and commercial sectors. We're looking at the broader retrofit space, which is a topic that is certainly near and dear to the hearts of real estate owners. We're looking at next-gen mobility, EV infrastructure, and in commercial uh, commercial heat and commercial inputs for for materials. So those are all spaces that you know, over the next 12 months, we want to go out there, build a thesis, talk with as many startups as we can revise our thesis because we're almost always wrong when we go in, but hopefully get there eventually and then hopefully make some new investments. We're, we're certainly excited about some of the opportunities we're seeing in that, but I think a more rational set of valuations in terms of the market this year versus where we were last year. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we welcome Rene Haas, CEO at NeoCarbon, a direct air capture startup reversing climate change. Thanks and goodbye.